0: Kindergarten. It was one of the most traumatic days of my life, actually. And it's like I remember it just like yesterday because I was all excited about going. It was sort of like a rite of passage for me. And it was great until it came time to go to school. And as my mom dropped me off, I said, Hey, mom, I don't want to do this. Would you just come with me? Would you sit in school with me? And she said, No, I can't. It's your school. Go to school. And I remember as she drove away, how tears welled up in my eyes. It was, it was traumatic. It was the first day away from home. Moses, when God told him that he was going to go to a new land, he said, Lord, no. I don't want to go unless you go with me, unless your presence is with me. I don't even want to make the trip. He longed for the presence of God so much. Like David who said, as a deer pants after the streams of water, so pants my soul after thee, O God. And just the cry of Moses, Lord, unless you go with me, I don't even want to leave. What a great, what a great attitude toward the Lord. That really is the essence of worship. I crave your presence, Lord. Now Moses has already experienced things that no one else has ever experienced. How many people do you know spoke face to face with the Lord as a man speaks to his friend as we saw in chapter 33 last week? How many people do you know could stick up their rod and the sea would open up? Or had the daily experience of having a pillar of cloud and fire lead them around? How many people do you know would wake up in the morning and see manna from heaven on the ground, and yet with all of the things that Moses saw wasn't enough? He craved a deeper relationship with the Lord. And in chapter 33, in verse 18, he said, "'Please show me your glory." That's actually where we kind of wrapped it up last time when we were together. And it's sort of a great place to pick it up even tonight. Please show me your glory. Here's Moses who had all of the experiences that he had and he still wasn't satisfied. He craved and longed for more. And I submitted a thought to you last time that worship was never really meant to satisfy us completely on earth, but only to whet our appetite for heaven. I've never been in a worship experience where I thought, oh, that's great. That's all that I need. I don't need anything else besides this wonderful night of worship. It's always been, oh, I want more. And I wanted to continue and I want to come even closer to the Lord than I ever have before. Worship was meant to whet our appetite. Moses said, Lord, please show me your glory. I think if we were to talk to each other honestly about our relationship with God, that there would be a holy dissatisfaction that you have. Oh, you're satisfied, certainly. He's filled your life, certainly. But even David said, I will be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. When I see him face to face and I awake and I'm like him, I'm transformed. One of the better books that I have read on a personal relationship with God is by Tim Stafford. It's called Knowing the Face of God. And he honestly confesses his own lack and his own desire in a personal relationship with God. He uncovers the meaning. What does it mean to have a personal relationship with God? And uh, in a few of the pages, he says, One night... One inky, blustery night when the wind blew the tree's arms high into the air, I walked for miles asking God again and again to simply show himself to me. I shouted to heaven to shatter the silence. I did not want to work up a feeling of God. I wanted God to break in on me. He did not. I heard no voice. I saw no lights in the sky. I went home to my dorm room and I went to bed. And I survived. I did more than survive. I grew. But I did not stop longing for God to be unquestionably real, real to me. I doubt that my friends ever dreamed such things were stirring in me, although I do remember taking my heart in my hands and talking to one friend, renowned in my circles for his spiritual wisdom. One is never so renowned for anything as, well, being a senior in college, Stafford says. I said to him, If only I could be absolutely certain that Jesus is here in this room with us, hearing every word we say. I believe he is, but at the same time I don't believe. If I did, I'd be able to act differently. I wouldn't dare sin in his presence. My friend seemed puzzled. He said Jesus did seem real to him, but he couldn't find a way to make him more real to me. On another occasion, I felt this emptiness as it affected someone else. I don't want to give the impression that my faith was utterly dry. Sometimes emotions and glimmerings streaked through me, not things of substance I could show off to skeptical psychologists, but things that were meaningful to me. I thought they came from God. I did not lack for intellectual satisfaction or for demonstrations of God's power. I saw him changing lives. My questions and doubts were only a footnote, a silent interjection into an exhilarating story. On a man-to-man level, Christianity was wonderful. It was the man-to-God level that I felt shaky about. I wanted more. I have come to realize since then that I was not alone in my longing. It's just that such questions usually are not voiced. When they are... When the conversation moves to the subject of actually knowing God, listeners suddenly grow quiet and attentive. For a long time, I thought this was a disapproving silence. I know now that it was the silence that falls on a room of hungry people when someone talks of food. Karl Marx, though he really was a meathead when it came to his ideologies, said something very accurate as he looked at human nature. He said, man is incurably religious. That's true. To put it in another terms, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity in our hearts. And so when we become Christians, the natural response to fulfill that longing is to worship, to turn and worship and say, Lord, it's not enough. I want more. I long for you. As Moses said, show me your glory. Now, in chapter 34, and as we said, because of the purpose of tonight kind of zeroing in on worship, we don't want to go through the whole chapter, but in chapter 34, God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel. He draws them out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. He reaffirms His covenant over and over, and He's going to take them to a new land. A temple will be erected, or eventually a tabernacle, actually, and they will worship God. And that really is the purpose of God renewing and making this covenant. is to cause them to respond to Him in a worship relationship, knowing that they cannot because of their sin, the only thing that can be done is a sacrificial system instituted whereby the blood of an innocent victim is shed. And they can come to know Him and worship Him. And that word actually occurs a few times in this chapter. Reaching out to people who do not know Jesus Christ, is essential for any church. Lest we become ingrown. We need to look out to the harvest fields, as Jesus said, seeing that the fields are white for harvest, people don't know Christ and have a desire to lead them to Christ. That's outreach. That's essential. But there's something that comes even before reaching out to the world. Before we can do that, we need to reach into ourselves. As a body of Christ, exercising the gifts that God has given to you and to me, being involved in each other's lives, ministering to one another, building each other up in the body of Christ, so that we can be edified, having the ammunition and the encouragement to be effective out in the world. But something comes even before that. Before outreach, before inreach, comes upreach, reaching up to God in worship. And I would say that every single thing in your life as a Christian, will depend on the quality of that relationship. If your relationship with God on that man-to-God level is weak, if you're weak in worship, you'll be weak in involvement in the body of Christ. You'll be weak in evangelism. But when God lights your fire, and you have that intimacy and you enjoy that with Him, It's very natural, and you'll be powerful as you get involved in other people's lives and as you turn outward to reach the world for Christ. Now, Moses, in chapter 33, is consumed with this desire to see the glory of God. In chapter 34, God consumes Moses with his self-disclosure, with the revelation of himself. And in these verses, there are 13 qualities... Of the nature of God. The Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. I will write on these tablets the words which were in the first tablet which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain, and no man shall come up with you. And let no man be seen. Throughout all the mountain, let neither flocks nor herds Feed before that mountain, and he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. And then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took his hand in his hand the two tablets of stone. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord. The Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. You say, no, wait a minute, stop right there, God. I've been hearing people for years say that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. You're supposed to be a God of wrath in the Old Testament, not goodness. I think you got it wrong, God. No. The God of the Old Testament is exactly the same as the God of the New Testament. And the God of the Old Testament loved his people so much, wanted them to come together and worship so much, that he instituted a sacrificial system that pointed forward to Jesus Christ. But this is the beginning of his attributes, merciful. Verse 7, Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste. Haste is not a food product. It's a, old, or it's a new King James or old King James way of saying he hurried up. He did it quickly. He responded to what God told him very quickly. He made haste and he bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. And then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. It says that he worshiped. The Hebrew word shacha, or to bow down, to prostrate oneself, to do homage, to give reverence. It is used 172 times in the Old Testament Most of those times, it refers to worship. The absolute abdication of one's body, soul, and spirit in worship of God. He bowed down and he worshiped the Lord. Now, Moses didn't get what he wanted. Lord, I want to see your glory. What did God give him instead? The revelation of his character. He stood there and proclaimed the name of God. Moses was consumed with this desire to see something. God disclosed himself because that's what Moses needed. And Moses responded by bowing down and worshiping. He didn't say, oh, God, that's not what I had in mind. I wanted to see your glory. I don't want you to give me a Bible study, all right? I'm going to leave. I want the tingles and the thrills and the shrills. And I didn't get it, so I'm leaving it's not what he said. He bowed down and he worshipped. Why? Because Moses' worship was not dictated by his feelings. It was a response to the character of God. That's true worship. As God reveals himself, our response naturally is to worship him when we're in tune with him. We study the word of God. That we make that our constant diet here at this church. And hopefully you make it your constant diet on a daily basis. We give ourselves to the Word. We exegete the Word. We apply the Word. We memorize the Word. But what's the purpose of the Word? To lead us in response in worship. The more we study the Word of God, the more powerful creatures of worship we ought to become because the Word reveals our God. As a pastor, I shouldn't read the Bible so that I can get a sermon out of it but so that I can respond to my God in worship as he discloses himself to me. We get up in the morning, we shouldn't read the Bible just so we can memorize a verse, so when we see our Christian friend at the office, we can impress him that we've memorized three or four verses. But it's there to lead us to God in worship and to have the same response that Moses had. And again, I remind you of those two on the road to Emmaus after Jesus came up to them and began at Moses, went through all the prophets and explained all things concerning himself in the Bible, they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us? Not as he revealed himself physically. They didn't even know it was Jesus until he left. Did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us along the way and opened up the scriptures to us? It led them to that Inevitable result of worship. It's hard to define worship, and I don't want to do that because of lack of time. We've done it before. There is a word, however, in the New Testament that is used for the word worship. And it's the word proskuneo, which means to kiss towards. Towards. That's how the word was used. That's the original idea of the meaning uh, of the word, to kiss towards, literally, or to show affection. You're consumed with that person's presence, you ascribe worth to that person, worth-ship, and you kiss toward. It's an intimate response of relationship. What's the purpose of worship? For God. The purpose of worship is not to make us feel good. You see, that's a very, very important point. We come to church, we worship, we get up in the morning, have quiet time, primarily for Him, because He bought us with a price and we belong to Him. And there's the danger that many people have in looking for a church or a worship setting or some experience just to satisfy them, is that we reduce the glory of God to a cheap, self-satisfying experience. So we look through the papers to see who's playing at what church. What's on the menu? Rather than, I belong to God. This is not for me, it's for Him. He's the audience, not me. And as God revealed Himself, then we worship. I have told you of the couple... And I can talk about it more freely now because it's so many years removed. Who came up to me at our previous building about eight years ago and said, Love the service today. It was a great place. Nice to meet you. And we're uh, looking around uh, for the right church. We're, and I said, That's great, great. Yeah, we're here. We just are checking you out to see what you have to offer. And I smiled. And I said, That's great. What do you have to offer? It's a two way street. Don't look around like on a cereal box. What are the right ingredients? But you are the church. You are the community of God. And we respond to him in worship. There's that story in the New Testament where Jesus walks up to the woman at the well of Samaria. She's living with many husbands. And Jesus, as you know, busts her, basically, saying... Yeah, I'll go get your husband. I don't have a husband. That's right. You've had several of them, and you're living with a guy who's not your husband. She goes, "Ooh." <laughs> I think you're a prophet. Yeah, that's right. More than that. <laughs> All of a sudden, she changes the subject, right? She starts talking about religious things. And it's very typical of people when you witness to them, and their heart starts getting touched. They start talking religious talk. And so she said, well, our fathers worship here, here on Mount Gerizim, and uh, you Jews worship down in Jerusalem trying to show the differences between religious systems. Jesus said those who worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's something that is based upon truth that never changes, but it's done in spirit. It, It captivates the whole person. It's not just done routinely or in rote, but it's done in spirit where your heart's behind it as a response to who God is. Now, I do want to say that when we worship, we do receive. But that's a byproduct. We don't do it to receive. We do receive from the Lord as we worship. But there are times, and you know it, when worship is a sacrifice. There's times you don't feel like it. You've got so many experiences against you. And the last thing you want to do is worship, lift your hands, or sing anything. It's just like, this is a drag, man. My heart is so broken. I don't feel like it. And then at that time, it becomes a sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us, By him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now, admit it. There's times you don't feel like coming to church. There's times I don't feel like coming to church. There's, I don't get up every Sunday and go, All right. There's times I'm tired. That alarm goes off pretty early and go, Oh, man. Well, then I shouldn't worship, should I? Because if I were to sing songs and I don't feel like doing it, that's hypocrisy. No, it's not. It's obedience. There's a lot of things in life that you do and you don't feel like doing, i.e., the alarm clock going off in the morning. Do you feel like getting up? Would your boss say, now listen, I don't want you to be a hypocrite. If you don't feel like coming to work early, come whenever you want. I want you to be true to your heart. Or would the boss tell the secretary now, you don't always have to be nice to people when they call on the phone. Sometimes there are creeps. And for you to be nice to them would be hypocrisy. I understand. Just go ahead, tell them off. <laughs> You'd say, I wish I had a boss like that. No, there's a lot of things we do contrary to how we feel, but we do it anyway as a response to what is right. That's why... In a love relationship between a husband and a wife, when they come together and they make vows to one another, they are vows based upon a commitment, not based upon feelings. I don't say, now will you have her to be your lawfully wedded wife? For better or for worse, tell feelings, do you part? That lasts a week at best. tell death, do you part? You're making a commitment. You gave your heart to Jesus. He's committed his heart to you. He's made a commitment to love you, to care for you, to nurture you. And he's disclosed himself to you. He constantly reveals himself to you. You live in a me generation, but don't drag the worship of God down to a place where, okay, it's here for me. This better be good. But, Lord, I, I belong to you. I'm yours. You're the audience. Sit back, Lord. I hope this blesses you. Here goes. See, worship is your cue, it's your turn to respond to him. Now, if Moses couldn't get what he wanted, he wanted to see God, of course, now he has his wish. After he died, he was in glory, especially in the New Testament times, taken from Abraham's bosom in the presence of God. If Paul the Apostle, even after 30 years of walking with the Lord, said, I haven't attained, I press toward that mark. Then don't think that you're going to reach a level of total satisfaction this side of heaven. But know this: when you worship in spirit and in truth, it whets your appetite for home, for heaven. And the more you worship, you just the more and more you go, "Oh Lord, I can't wait till you come! I can't wait till you come!" Because worship breeds wonder. We wonder what's it going to be like to stand before His throne, to see Him face to face what's it going to be like? I can only imagine now. It breeds wonder. It whets our appetite. It motivates us. It purifies us. One of the great hymn writers of the church, Fanny Crosby, I know it's an odd name, but that was her name. She wrote many worship songs and she became blind from a very early age. And one time, an insensitive minister, came up to Fanny Crosby and said, you know, it is a pity with all the gifts that God has given you that he didn't heal you and enable you to see. And she quickly responded, let me tell you something. If I had one wish that could be granted to me, I would wish that I could have been born blind. He was stunned, as you could well imagine. He said, why? She quickly said, because then the first face that would gladden my sight would be the face of my Savior. She lost her sight. But she was, even at that point, looking forward to seeing the face of Jesus Christ when she would be in glory. She has her wish. And tonight we could be certain to say she is satisfied. Now, before we go back to worship, some of you tonight are here, and you've watched us worship. You've looked at this worship group, you're not a Christian yet, and you go, Man, I've never seen anything like this. These people are singing like Jesus is really real, like he's here somewhere. You've never seen anything like it. To you, it's just been ritual and routine all your life. And your heart is aching, it's crying out. To know the personal and living God, he is real. He does satisfy our deep longings. Though we're not completely satisfied till we see Him face to face, there is that sense of reality and satisfaction as we enter into worship. And the thing I want to point out to all of us is simply that if you haven't already given your heart, your life, who you are to Jesus Christ then you have settled for much, much less than God ever intended you to settle for. Your religion will never satisfy. It will never satiate the thirst that you have. Jesus said you have to come to him for that. And after the service, we want to give you an opportunity to make that commitment as you would go to the prayer room, to your left, up in front, give your heart to Jesus, as many have done this morning already. Maybe tonight would be your night. Then the rest of us, Let's enter in in a fresh way as we close the rest of this night off with worship. We respond to him. You are not the audience, and the worship band isn't the people on stage. You're on stage, and God is sitting back waiting to hear from your heart as you worship him. Let's pray. Lord, we know that um, David testified of praise and worship. When he said, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry, pulled me out of the miry clay out of the pit, set my feet upon a rock, and put a new song in my mouth. Praise unto our God, and many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Lord, I pray that the very event of worship itself would so create a thirst in us that it would drive some of us tonight to trust in the Lord as we see it in fear and wonder and awe. And Lord, I pray that you would water our hearts tonight. Those of us who know you, who love you, it's so great to be in your presence. It's so great to learn new songs. There's nothing greater, no greater experience. But we are reminded tonight that worship is not primarily for us it is for you it is now our cue our turn to render you what is due your name and if we value you if we count you as worthy we will worship in Jesus name amen let's get back to it and let's get back to it and let's get back to it and let's get